Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we open up uh, your words in Nehemiah on this anniversary Sunday, we pray that you'd be speaking to us, uh, both individually and as a church, clearly and mightily, pointing us to your goodness to us in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you'd be shaping us and growing us more and more like him. Please, Holy Spirit, work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on the 15th of April, uh, 2019, uh, Notre Dame de Paris, an iconic cathedral in Paris, uh, literally meaning Our Lady in Paris, uh, while it was being renovated and being restored, the roof caught fire, and it was burning for more than 15 hours, it could be seen, as you can see, all throughout Paris. And in the aftermath, there was serious damage to this 800-year-old building. The spire had been destroyed. The roof had caved in. And if you saw the news, if you were in France, you would have seen there was legitimate mourning in the people of France. There was sadness, an outpouring of grief, one of their icons was in ruins, not totally destroyed, but in a state of disgrace, ashes and rubble. And also, if you were tuning into the news at the time, you would have seen that there was also a strong desire for this icon to be returned to glory, to be rebuilt, to see uh, Notre Dame, uh, tower over the city yet again in its majesty, and its construction is due to be finished uh, next year, actually. Well, as we begin our series in Nehemiah, as we consider chapter one on our anniversary Sunday, uh, we see a situation with some similarities to the scene that we saw before in Notre Dame. Nehemiah, this guy, he sees the walls of Jerusalem. He hears about it. It's in a state of ruin. The walls that protected the people of Israel, that set the people apart as the people of God, it was in rubble and ashes, decimated to the ground. And Nehemiah, we read in chapter 1, he responds in mourning and sadness. And he shows a desire to change this ruin and to return it to glory. Uh, we haven't been in the Old Testament for a while, uh, so just to give a bit of context of where we find ourselves in today and for this coming term, uh, the people of God, uh, they've come into the promised land, uh, they've been formed into a nation, Israel growing its boundaries, defeating its enemies, a golden age under David and Solomon. But then, this people, they declined. They fell into sin, idolatry, chasing after other gods, compromising with other nations. The nation was divided, Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And both of these groups were judged and conquered. Israel, the ten tribes in the north, they were smashed by the Syrians at 722 B.C., and never to return back to their homeland. And Judah, the two southern tribes, they were defeated by the Babylonians. Many of them were taken captive, 
and they were transported from their land into foreign lands. In 539 BC, Persia defeated Babylon, and Ezra chapter 1 quotes the decree of the Persian ruler Cyrus in letting the captives of Judah go back to their homeland. And it goes like this in Ezra 1 verse 1. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who's in Jerusalem." So Ezra, the book before this, sees the beginning of this remnant of God's people making their way back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is in the mid-450s BC, and it continues the return of God's people back to the city of Jerusalem. Also, as we start this series, we need to keep in mind that the book of Nehemiah, while it's the memoirs, the writings of Nehemiah, it's not actually about Nehemiah. He's not the hero. And it's not actually about the building of the walls either. They do get built in some way, but the, the masterpiece in this book isn't the city walls. You see, Nehemiah is about the rebuilding work of God's people, of God's covenant promises, and of God's glory among his people. And today, as we start this series on our anniversary Sunday, we want to be people and a church that is consumed and captured by God's glory, living for God and His glory. Well, as we start off, let's have a look at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who would survive the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. The first thing we learn, it's Nehemiah's word here. He's writing. The second thing, we get a date. It points to foreign rule in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. That's around 445 BC. We get a location, Susa. That's the king's winter residence. It's kind of like his holiday palace, possibly. It's in Iran. It's 1,300 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah bumps into fellow Jews, Jews who knew what had been happening in Jerusalem since the return had started. And the report of Jerusalem goes like this in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. It's not a pretty report, is it? We're talking about God's people, God's chosen people, the people whom God promised blessings 
land, nation, offspring. We remember in Exodus, a glorious people. But look at the state of affairs now. Land. Nehemiah and his brothers, the Jews, they were in Iran, not Jerusalem. Nation. The city walls representing the nation of God's people. They were destroyed in ruins, leaving the city open and unprotected. And offspring. It's not a multitude, it's not a crowd, it's a remnant. And they're in great trouble and shame. They're in a state of disgrace, ruin as a people. God's people, God's promises, God's covenant relationship with his people, God's glorious city, it's not looking good. It's nowhere close to where it should be. Its state is in ruins and disgrace, trouble and shame. That's the report Nehemiah was given. It's pretty bleak. How would you respond to news like that? Put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes, hearing about the state of Jerusalem, God's city, your hometown, your homeland in ruins. Or you might respond by downplaying it. It's not that bad, is it? God's city isn't too ruined. You might respond in apathy. It is really ruined, but you do nothing about it. Someone else will deal with it, not me, not my problem. You might respond by blaming others. Instead of doing something yourself, you point fingers. It's the Babylonians' fault for destroying us. It's our fault for sinning. It's God's fault if, it's real, if he's really in control. Or you might respond in being overwhelmed. Yeah, wow, it's, it's really it's so ruined. It's so super bad. What's the point of getting involved, what are we going to do? You see, these are all ways that we respond to God's work. We can downplay the urgency. We do nothing about it. We blame instead of getting our hands dirty. Or we get overwhelmed and we freeze and do nothing. Well, let's see how Nehemiah responds in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, this news, this report, it pierced Nehemiah's heart. He was so moved about it all, his hometown, his nation, and even more so, God's people, God's city, God's glory, lying disgraced in ruins. That he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and prayed. You see, Nehemiah, he's totally, fully consumed by the glory of God. Feel his emotions. He mourned, his heart broke at the state of God's city, a symbol of God's glory, God's covenant people and promises lying in ruins. And this morning, 
brings Nehemiah to his knees in prayer. Verse 4. It already shows Nehemiah fasting and praying, but verse 5 to 11 shows us what exactly Nehemiah prays for in response to the city walls in ruin. And note, it's not a straight, hey God, our city's in ruins, please help it to be rebuilt, amen. That would be like half a verse. But we're going to see the richness of Nehemiah's dependency on God. I'm going to highlight four parts to it. As Nehemiah prays, consumed by God's glory, heartbroken at the state of Jerusalem. And the first part is an upward movement, verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, Nehemiah, he starts by looking up. He remembers who God is. He's the God of heaven. He's great and awesome. And most importantly, he keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises with his people. He's the faithful God. He won't give up. He continues to work for the good of his people and his glory. Then Nehemiah, he moves inward in verse 6. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah, he moves inward to confession. He takes responsibility of his sin, not just his, but his family's sin and his people's sin. Because you see, the exile, the ruin, the destruction, it wasn't God's fault, but it was a consequence of the people's disobedience to God and his covenant. And my sin, your sin, especially our unconfessed sin, is like a barrier between us and God. We need to bring it to God, to own it, to confess, to ask for forgiveness and to return to him. And that's what Nehemiah does here. He puts his hand up and says, I'm a sinner. I've wronged you, God. I take responsibility. Are we humble enough to confess our sins before God? On my best days, I'm not good at confession. Just ask Angela. I hate admitting that I did something wrong, whether it's to someone else or to God. And I reckon I'm not alone here. And if we take the traditional parts of prayer, we're generally good at thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, and we're good at supplication, asking God. But I reckon we struggle the most with confession, putting our hands up before God and saying we've sinned. Yes, Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross once for all, but we still sin in this present age. We're not in the perfect new creation yet. 
and was still to bring our sins to God. Both when we first come to Jesus and then day by day as we keep living for Jesus. Nehemiah, he moves again. He moves from inward to downward in verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. He goes from inward to downward, from heartfelt confession to being rooted in God's covenant promises. Nehemiah, he asked God, remember your covenant, remember your promises, remember what you said you would do for your chosen people. If you remember in Deuteronomy, it's repeated a few times, curses if people rejected God which is what the people just experienced, judgment and exile, and blessings if the people lived God's ways, blessings of people, a land, God's nation. And Nehemiah adds in verse 10, they're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. See, Nehemiah's prayers rooted in God's covenant promises. This remnant, this ruined and shamed people, it's your people, God. God saved them and redeemed them. He's looking back to the great exodus in Egypt. And Nehemiah, he brings this up to say to God, do it again. Show your glory again redeem and make your people great, just like you did in the past, just like you promised. And the fourth and final part of this prayer looks outward in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. God is king. He's the Lord, Yahweh. You see, Nehemiah is merely a servant. He's not the hero. And he ends this prayer by effectively saying, God, answer this prayer of showing your glory, of working out your covenant promises, of rebuilding your people. And answer this prayer using me in me, in all of us. Let me and us be part of this work. You see, God-shaped, glory-driven, kingdom-minded, and heart-filled prayer. It's reverent and holy, but it's also practical. It includes heartfelt pleas, but it's also intensely honest and humbling. And in his mourning, Nehemiah asked God, work your promises, rebuild your glory once again. Use me in that work. So far we've seen Nehemiah respond to the ruins of the Jerusalem war in mourning, in prayer. But the last teaser we get, 
which leads out of his prayer and leads into chapter 2 next week, is that Nehemiah responds in sacrificial service of the king. Have a look at this phrase at the end of verse 11. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You see, Nehemiah, he was working in the royal courts, a great feat for a Jew who worked uh, to work into that space. I reckon Nehemiah, he had the best and worst role in the empire. You see, as cupbearer to the king, uh, he would serve drinks to the king, and he'd taste them first before serving them to the king. He would taste the finest coffees and wines and beers around. But the catch is that he was doing this to protect the king, to protect him from poisonings, from assassination attempts, or just simply drinking bad drinks like baby mice wine or blend 43. Nehemiah's job was to lay down his life for the Persian king. But I think Nehemiah writes this here, yes, to say what he did for a living, yes, to introduce what comes in chapter 2, but I think he also does this leading out of his prayer to allude to the reality that Nehemiah also serves another king, the king he just prayed to and called himself a servant of and asked to be used for the king's glory. See, chapter 1 ends with Nehemiah as cupbearer to the Persian king, but in sacrificial service to Yahweh, God, the king of all. So we've gone through Nehemiah chapter 1. We've seen uh, the report from Jerusalem. The walls are in ruins. The people are in shame. And we've seen Nehemiah's response of mourning, praying, and being ready to act in sacrificial service. And the walls of Jerusalem, it wasn't just about fixing them up. You see, the walls were a symbol of God's covenant promises with his people. God's promise to save and redeem and to make his people into a multitude in a promised land and as a chosen nation. And as we think about this today, what the walls pointed to, they're not ruined. God has worked. God has been good on his promises. And they've been ultimately fulfilled in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he did what the walls pointed to, securing a relationship between God and his people, working salvation demonstrating God's glory, establishing God's covenant promises, a promised people, the church, one new humanity in Jesus through his death and resurrection, and looking forward to the promised land, which is the new creation in eternity. But in the timeline of God's saving work, while God's promises have really been fulfilled and the new covenant has really been established, we're not there yet. We're not yet in the new creation. 
where God's glory is directly in our midst when we finally dwell in God's city forever. And even on the other side of the cross for us today, I think we still experience similar feelings as Nehemiah, reports of God's glory in ruins. There's still places in our world today, near and far, halfway around the world or right in our backyards, where God simply isn't glorified, where God's name is in ruins, where Jesus isn't glorified, where he's actually disgraced. We think of the hundreds of millions in countries worshipping false gods day by day, praying to them day by day, people performing rituals and living to gain favour from their false gods and idols. But it's not just far away. We think of the millions in our backyards, in schools and universities, where humanism and materialism is worshipped above Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. In workplaces where idols of success, money and status replace Jesus from whom all blessings flow. And in our beautiful country where people love God's creation more than God, the creator. You see, Nehemiah, he felt and he responded to bricks and mortar, gates and walls. We have what it pointed to, God sending his beloved son to die that we might live forever. Shouldn't our hearts today break just like Nehemiah's did when God's glory today lies in disgraced ruins? when Jesus isn't glorified today. Well, Nehemiah chapter 1, it gives us three steps in responding when we see this happening today. And the first is to mourn. Are we a people deeply desiring the glory of Jesus? So desiring the glory of Jesus to say, this grieves me to feel the sadness of God's creation rejecting their creator, of Jesus, the Lord of all, not being given the time of day in people's lives, in our community, and in our world. Let your heart break for what breaks God's heart. The second step is to pray. Are we a people driven to prayer for the glory of Jesus? We're quick to pray when we have an urgent need. I know people who pray for a car park every time they drive into Garden City. But are we deeply desiring the glory of Jesus and see that Jesus isn't glorified? Are we quick to pray when we see this? Are we quick to pray for the glory of Jesus in our world around us, for the urgent need of Jesus being glorified?
Nehemiah's example shows us to bring it to God, to bring it to God even before you do anything else. And his prayer looks upward, remembering who God is. It moves inward, confessing our sin and turning to God. It looks downward, planting ourselves in God's promises. And then it looks outward, asking for God's work and favour in all we do. God is the one who works according to his covenant promises, according to his glory. And our role is to come to him, to ask him to do what he loves to do. That's why one of our church values is prayer dependent. That's why we have a monthly prayer meeting. Corey Tamboon says a man is powerful on his knees. And we believe as God's church that we are most powerful first and foremost on our knees to God. And in the last step that we'll focus more on next week, the last step is to be ready to act in sacrificial service, to be like cupbearers, putting our lives on the line for God's kingdom work, to be so concerned that we would pray and then that we would act to say to God, I'm your servant. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, for your glory, I'm here. Use me. It's going to look different for each of us, whether we are students, workers, mums, dads, singles, retirees, high energy, low energy, fit and healthy, struggling through difficulties, young and old. But the call is the same, to be ready to act in sacrificial service, life-giving service, to bring glory to Jesus. More about what that looks like next week, but for today, are we driven to act in sacrificial service to bring glory to Jesus? Are we driven to act in sacrificial service to bring glory to Jesus? As you can imagine, I wasn't around in 1959 uh, when Upper Mount Gravatt Baptist Church was constituted, uh, but in a booklet detailing the church's history, I'm almost certain that this church, this local body of Christ, was established by believers deeply desiring to see Jesus glorified, moved by the void of gospel work in this new and upcoming area of Upper Mount Gravatt. It says in this booklet, Holland Park Baptist Church, that's now Gateway Baptist, saw the opportunity of bringing the gospel into this area. Land for housing was becoming available after the end of the war and homes were being built. Homes that would be occupied by families who needed the saviour. You see, God's worked through this local church over 64 years, bringing the gospel into this area, reaching out to homes and families who needed a saviour in Jesus. Some of you 
were saved by God's work through this church. Many of us have grown and have grown others as God worked through this local body of Christ. Let's stop and praise God for this. To praise God for this over the last year and over the last 64 years. And as we enter the 65th year of this local church, let's continue that deep desire to see Jesus glorified. If we don't have it, let's grow it. Let's reignite it. Let's rekindle it. That deep desire for Jesus that breaks our hearts for what breaks God's heart, that drives us to our knees in prayer, that calls us to act in sacrificial service. Let's pray that we would be that people, consumed by and captured by the glory of God. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, you are the great and holy God, the one who created us and saves us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that your promises that seem so distant in Nehemiah's time have all been wonderfully fulfilled in your Son as he died for our sins and rose into new life forever. God, we confess that we are people easily led astray. Help us by your spirit to follow you and to live for you alone and your glory alone. Ground us, Lord, and anchor us in Jesus. Move our hearts as we see your name and the name of Jesus not being glorified, but being disgraced. And Father, help us to serve Jesus and give him glory wherever you place us. Please use us as individuals and us corporately as your church to be part of your work in making Jesus known. We pray this not for ourselves, not for our fame, not for building up Hertford Street Baptist. We ask all these things for your glory and the glory of Jesus. Amen.